Why, hello there, nerds. I'm Ash. And I'm Nat. And you're listening to Crime Time Nerds, a sister podcast. Welcome back, nerdlings, to yet another episode of Crime Time Nerds. This week, Ash and I are traveling back to a Vermont case from 1957. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about the strange unsolved case of Mr. Orville Gibson, who disappeared back on December 31st of 1957, and he was thought to have been missing up until his body was found 85 days later after his initial disappearance. This case remains unsolved to this day, as there is still a lot of questions about just what happened to Orville Gibson that day. This case has even led to some local legends surrounding the area, and it is even thought that Orville haunts the area to this day. We aren't going to focus really on the myth of this too much, as we want to highlight the actual disappearance of Orville and what the facts of his disappearance are. Yeah, for sure. I've always heard this lore. Actually, it's a fairly known case here, but I wasn't too familiar with his actual disappearance. You know, it's something you hear about, but... I never really had dug into the actual case. I'd, I'd only ever heard some of the, the myth and the haunting piece. So I found it really interesting just to learn more about who he was and what happened to him. There's just, there's a lot of questions still to this day on this case. So, you know, we're going to let you folks kind of come to your own conclusions as to what may or may not have happened to Orville back in 1957. And with that, nerdlings, it's time to leave the light and dust off our boots as we start traveling down some old Vermont dirt roads into 1957, when Orville Gibson mysteriously disappeared and then was subsequently found deceased several months later. So we've talked about this before. New England is a strange place, and if you've never been here, us New Englanders like our small, quaint towns, and we tend to be a private bunch. And oftentimes, we hold on to our small-town secrets. Orville Gibson's story is thought to be one of these such cases. If you've never been to Vermont, then you may not realize that Vermont is mostly a state based in agriculture. Our farmers are the backbone of this weird little state, and Orville Gibson, a farmer himself, was like many of these amazing farmers that live here today. Orville owned a prosperous dairy farm back in 1957 in Newbury, Vermont. Orville Gibson had moved to the town of Newbury as a young boy, and he was one of five children, four girls, and him the lone boy. The family moved onto a dairy farm that was located out on High Road in Newbury in the year of 1920. Like many people during that time, they were a Christian family, known to be upstanding citizens. Their family was described as a no-nonsense, clean-living family, which is a common descriptor of old New Englanders. It just means that we're pretty pragmatic and matter-of-fact here, which the Gibson family was no exception. The Gibson children all helped with chores on the farm, and all of the kids actually had better-than-average grades in school. Orville actually ended up as the valedictorian for his class. In his speech for graduation, he actually remarked on his respect for the law. Orville was described as a very serious person. He didn't drink, he got good grades, and he chose not to smoke or swear, which I can definitely respect. His peers often stated that Orville would not become, quote, one of the boys, 
and a lot of his peers thought he was a bit uppity due to his serious, studious nature. And I kind of feel sad for Orville. He just seemed misunderstood. He was super smart and just didn't fit in with the other kids at the time. I agree. I think that was a lot of it. Yeah. Orville's studious, serious nature worked out well for him, though. Not long after he graduated, the Great Depression hit. Orville was able to fare okay, though. He compared to many folks as he had married his high school sweetheart, Evelyn Runnels, and he had become a successful businessman who was a traveling salesman for a wholesale grocery firm. While Orville did well as a businessman, it wasn't his love. He knew that he really wanted to be a dairy farmer one day, and it was his dream. Orville worked tirelessly to make the dream of being a dairy farmer come true. A few more years go by, and one day in 1949, Orville gets up early, pretty much as soon as the sun rises, and he goes over to the Orange County Courthouse in Chelsea, Vermont. Orville took out all of the money he had been saving over the years and put a bid on a 300-acre farm that was in south of Newbury, Vermont. The farm was known as the Old Creer Place, which had been a very successful dairy farm back in its time, but had unfortunately fallen into foreclosure status in 1949. That foreclosure status, and the fact that Orville woke up at the crack of dawn, allowed Orville Gibson and his wife Evelyn to purchase the much-coveted Greer Farm. It's important to note that many folks in town had actually had their eyes on that Greer Farm. It was a 300-acre dairy farm, which in the state, like Vermont, has the potential to be very profitable. Orville had beat everybody else to that farm, however, due to his dedicated nature and his ability to get up at the crack of dawn that morning. Several townsfolk were up in arms over the fact that Orville Gibson had beat them to the opportunity of purchasing the Greer Place. There was one member of the community who was the former selectman and actually a former state senator, Walter Renfrew. Renfrew was exceedingly outraged that Orville Gibson had beat him to purchasing the Greer farm. Many other prominent citizens were frustrated that Orville had beaten them to obtaining the coveted farm. Many folks in Orville's community secretly hoped that Orville would not succeed in his goal to turn the defunct Greer farm into a successful dairy farm. Luckily for Orville, he proved them all wrong. By 1957, Orville and his family had taken the once lost Greer farm and turned it into the prosperous Gibson Dairy Farm. Orville was considered neighborly by locals. He would often help other folks out in town, and it was said that Orville once helped an elderly neighbor who had taken ill with her flower beds. He also once cultivated his hospitalized neighbor's cornfields while they were sick, which is super sweet and very much a New England thing to do. Definitely. Orville was described by many folks as being generous, helpful, and a good person. He once delivered the wife of his hired man to the hospital through icy roads, or how he used to make wooden tables for the church suppers in their community. Orville was a genuine, proud, and kind Vermonter. He loved the farm that he worked so hard to obtain, and he helped his community and those who needed a helping hand. Orville wasn't just kind towards his neighbors, he also was generous with his farm workers. Right before Christmas in 1956, Orville actually gave his hired man, Ari Martin, a $25 bonus, which, remember, this is the 1950s, that is a ton of money. 
Ari Martin had worked for Orville for over five years, and they hadn't ever seemed to have any issues. The two genuinely had seemed to get along quite well. But that was all to end a few nights later when Orville, who was out in his barn, was confronted with an intoxicated Ari Martin. The two men had words, which is a very New England way of saying they were fighting. Orville told the drunk Erie to go home and sleep it off. Erie then became enraged at Orville's comment and grabs a wheelbarrow with two 40-quart cans of milk, and he threw them down the milk ramp on the farm, which, of course, spilled the milk and ruined it for the day. After he throws it, Erie lost his balance and was cracked in the ribs by the handles of the wheelbarrow when he had tried to push it down the ramp. Orville told Erie to go home and that he would settle up with him later. Erie, who was still belligerent at this point, continued to berate Orville about the situation. It's at this moment that the intoxicated Erie snaps and tells Orville that, quote, no son of a bitch is going to put me out of the barn, unquote. In response, Orville then grabbed Erie and physically threw him out of the barn. Erie would then go home, and at this point, he told his son that Orville, of all people, had beaten him up, and that it was Orville who had cracked his ribs and had injured his kidneys. So, again, super important to note that when Erie is later interviewed by police, he does admit that the injuries he had suffered did not come from Orville, that they did come about from how he had fallen after throwing the milk pails down the ramp. Rumors began to spread like wildfire in the small New England town of Newberry, Vermont. The Gibsons received threats from members within town saying that they had heard of the, quote, Christmas party that Orville had given Erie and that they would be happy to give the same treatment back to Orville. The Gibsons received threatening letters in the mail from folks regarding Orville due to the fight between him and Erie. Police actually issued a breach of peace summons, which is basically like an ordinance piece, which was in regards to the actual incident with Erie a few days after the fight they had had. And this is actually in the week between Christmas and New Year's Eve. The officer who actually issued the citations was a man named Larry Washbourne, who was a local police officer. The town at this point becomes rife with rumors and there are a lot of threats towards Orville Gibson after his altercation with Erie Martin. The Gibsons continued to ignore the rumors and they went about their lives, running their farm and just trying to move forward from the incident with Erie. One of the townsfolk was actually quoted as saying that Orville, quote, should be tarred and feathered and rode out of town on a rail, unquote, after they got word of the heated exchange from Erie and Orville and the now circulating rumors that Orville had beat Erie up again. All of the evidence said that Orville had not and that Erie actually got his injuries by a fall, but he had told people otherwise. Oftentimes, anger can fuel the flames of rumor. The Gibsons had put a lot of folks off when they had initially bought the farm as it had been sought after by many people in Newbury at the time. The incident with Erie Martin brought a lot of frustration and anger bubbling up to the surface. The morning of December 31st started out fairly normal for the Gibson family. Orville woke up early, as he usually did, and set out to do his daily chores at the farm. This was the last time Orville was seen alive. Orville never got around to do his daily farm chores. 
That morning, just before 4 a.m. of December 31st, Orville put on his gray wool cap and grabbed a metal pail to go out and do the morning milking of his cows. Orville walked across the highway in front of his house and made his way to his barn that morning. It was the last time he was spotted alive, as he would be missing for three months before his body was found in the Connecticut River. His wife, Evelyn, immediately realized that Orville was missing and reached out to the Vermont State Police around 6.30 a.m. that morning on December 31st. Two troopers were immediately dispatched to the Gibson farm. The two officers, William Graham, and ironically enough, Larry Washburn, the officer who had given Orville the breach of peace summons, arrived at the farm. Once there, it was fairly evident that something had happened to Orville. In the barn, they discovered his milk pail, dented and lying on the floor. They also discovered scuff marks throughout the barn, as well as large drag marks, indicating a struggle had taken place. Word spread fast throughout the town of Newbury, Vermont. Everyone knew that Orville was missing by the early morning hours of December 31st. The two officers, Washburn and Graham, began investigating just what could and did happen to Orville Gibson that day on December 31st, when he went out to milk his cows and never returned. The obvious thing that had happened with Orville that could have led to his disappearance was his recent fight with Ari Martin. It did give officers pause, as most folks in the town knew about the fight, and it had caused a lot of tension between the Gibsons and many citizens of Newbury at that time. It also was very good grounds for a potential kidnapping situation of Orville, as the threats from folks in the town had been consistent. The other possible theory that could have happened to Orville was suicide, as family members had admitted to the two officers that Orville had been very upset and depressed about the situation resulting from the fight with Ari Martin. Later that day, Orville's brother-in-law, Freeman Placey, decided to go help search for his missing brother-in-law. It was during this independent search that he spotted something on a nearby bridge. On the bridge, Placey spotted silage, which for those who don't know, silage is a pickling process of pasture grass that is used to feed cows when the pasture isn't available, such as in the winter months of Vermont. Placey immediately went back to the farm and had Washburn follow him to the bridge to show the officer what he had found. The silage is unique to each individual farm, and Placey was convinced the silage he had found on the bridge belonged to that of Orville Gibson's farm. The next day, after Orville's disappearance, Washburn and Graham decided to take a boat ride in order to determine if perhaps Orville's body was in the Connecticut River, based on the findings of the silage from the farm on the bridge. They drug the dark, murky, cold waters of the Connecticut River in hopes of finding Orville's body, but it was to no avail. The two officers then began to dig the grain bins and manure in hopes of finding Orville, but nothing came up. They searched throughout the town of Newbury for days, then weeks, and eventually, after 85 days, they finally were able to find the body of Orville Gibson. On the 85th day of the search for the missing Orville Gibson, the two officers, Washburn and Lawrence, decided to take the boat out onto the river in hopes of catching a break and finding some evidence as to what happened to Orville back on New Year's Eve. They launched their boat on the New Hampshire side of the Connecticut River and began to search the water. And not long after their search, they spotted what they first assumed was a muskrat house in the water. 
the two officers went out to investigate further as it stood out to them. And that is when they finally found the body of the missing farmer, Orville Gibson. What they had found was shocking. Orville's body was in a state surprising to the officers. They found his hands bound and tied to the back of his thighs. His legs were also tied together. His body was blackened from being in the water for so long. He was still dressed in the clothes that he had been wearing on the day of his disappearance. He was found roughly seven miles downstream from the iron bridge where the silage had been discovered. As is the case in most small towns, word spread quickly that the body of Orville Gibson had been found. With the discovery of Orville's body, the case became a nationwide story. It was often referred to as the Vermont Vigilante Murder, a Yankee lynching. There were theories and rumors spreading everywhere throughout the area as to what had happened to Orville that day. Witnesses began to come forward in the days after Orville's disappearance and in the subsequent months following his body being discovered. There was a local doctor named John Perry Hooker who became an eyewitness as to what could have transpired in order to lead to Orville Gibson's body being found in the Connecticut River. Dr. John Perry told police that he had driven by Gibson's barn that day and had seen a sedan parked on the side of the road and it was noticeably close to the barn. The doctor noticed a few men standing around the sedan, and he happened to recognize one of the men as being Ozzy, or Robert Orzo Welsh. Again, remember this is a super small town in New England, and like most small towns, pretty much everybody knows everybody. So, not surprising that the doctor would pass by and recognize one of the men in front of the car. Officers immediately pulled Welsh in for questioning, and while being investigated, his story is alleged to have changed five times as to his actual whereabouts on the morning of December 31st when Orville Gibson disappeared. It is also alleged that the rope was shown to Welch and he admitted it belonged to him. Folks were asked to submit to lie detector tests in Concord, New Hampshire, in order to try and find out just who else was possibly involved with the disappearance of Orville Gibson. One thing began to become clear, though, which was that a lot of people in the town became silent on any information regarding just what happened to Orville that day in December. People stopped talking and sharing information after the discovery of Orville's body. And while folks stopped talking in town, the authorities were able to trace the sedan back to West Newbury and a man named Frank Carpenter. Frank Carpenter was well known to the police as he had had several run-ins with the law. In order to try to narrow down the suspects, the police had various citizens of Newbury come in for those polygraph tests. Remember, polygraph testing was in its infancy at this point, and it is also considered fallible. I believe nowadays it's very rare that it's admissible in a court of law. So, you know, this was the 1950s, but you wouldn't necessarily have that be a, a surefire use in nowadays times. Although the state of Vermont did not own an actual polygraph machine, they had a police escort some of the residents to Concord, New Hampshire. Again, this is actually not very far from New Hampshire. I think we've mentioned that before, but this area of Vermont is maybe 30 minutes away from the New Hampshire area. So one resident is quoted as saying, quote, the people of Newbury had nothing to say about the murder, unquote. Some of the lead suspects were actually given upwards of four tests with no avail. There was talk in the town that Ozzy had been seen at Dr. John Perry's office asking for a refill prescription for tranquilizers. It also just so happens that on the day of Ozzy Welsh's polygraph test, 
He actually had trouble staying awake, according to several of the technicians during the test. Officers began to look at the evidence that they did have as the polygraph test had pretty much become inconclusive and brought them no further information as to what could have happened to Orville Gibson that day. One thing that they did know is that the rope that was used to tie up Orville Gibson was typically one that was seen in barns as it had a series of nail holes throughout the rope. They also tried an experiment by having their police lieutenant, who was known as Lieutenant Nash, who was of a similar height and build to Orville, they tried an experiment by tying him up, pretty much in the same way that Orville had been found, in order to try to see what the repercussions of this action would be. What they discovered is that Nash began to have trouble breathing when they tied him up in the same fashion that Orville had been tied up which would then lead to theories as to Orville possibly suffocating when he was tied up in that same position. This began to make authorities start to wonder if perhaps a group of men maybe had gotten together, maybe they were drinking and those such activities, and between the group of them had decided to pay Orville a visit. Perhaps they were just trying to scare Orville or play a prank on him, just as revenge for the assumed beating of Erie Martin. One theory states that perhaps after they had tied Orville up, he began to suffocate and then accidentally died, which when discovered by the group of men, the group panicked, and in their panic, they threw Orville's body out into the Connecticut River. Officer Graham was quoted as saying, quote, We were pretty sure a certain group of fellas had been together drinking that night. It was easy enough to picture what happened. They jumped him and tied him up. Later, there were rumors that they meant to leave him on the town common for one of us to find. This is a small town. These men weren't professional killers, but they didn't know that Gibson had a respiratory problem. When they bound him up, he suffocated. When they saw that he was dead, they panicked and dumped him in the river. Then they made a deal to keep it quiet. It was a mean prank that ran away from them." Eventually, Ozzy Welsh was brought in to be tried for the murder of Orville Gibson. There were 28 witnesses brought to the bench that day for the prosecution. The defense, however, had zero. The case centered on the evidence of the rope and the testimony of Dr. Hooker, who had witnessed the group of men and the vehicle outside of the Gibson bar. The judge was asked by the defense team to put up the vote of non-guilty for Ozzy Welsh in a rare turn of events for a capital case. The judge actually granted the motion and Ozzy Welsh was found to be not guilty. Two months after his acquittal, Welsh, who was a free man, as he had been fully acquitted of the crime, actually died of cancer. Frank Carpenter was also taken to trial in April of 1960. Unfortunately, what happened during Carpenter's trial is that many of the witnesses, their memories became vague as to the events of that day back in December 31st of 1957. Many witnesses recanted their testimonies, and because of these events, Frank Carpenter was also found to be not guilty. Frank Carpenter, who was fully acquitted of the crime of murder, later died in 1972. No one else has ever been charged in the murder of Orville Gibson. His wife, Evelyn, moved from Newbury, Vermont, and she remarried. And while Orville's case remains unsolved, his memory has lived on. It has become a ghost story in the small New England town of Newbury, Vermont. More questions and answers exist as to what exactly happened to Orville Gibson that fateful day back on December 31st of 1957 when Orville decided to go and milk his cows that morning and he never returned home. There are old secrets and legends that will never be forgotten. 
we can only hope that over time, perhaps, those secrets will come to light. There is a lot of angles to this case, um, but I do have to say, I do not believe that this was a suicide. Nah, I, I agree with you. I think they ruled that one out. It sounds like pretty early on. It, I could see in the beginning where they maybe suspected, especially if not really knowing the circumstances. But I think the officers, from what I could tell reading the case, I was given the impression that they really weren't pretty sold on the suicide thing. I, I definitely agree. I don't I don't think this was a suicide. I think there was a lot of evidence pointing to to a struggle and then, of course, to to his death and to his murder. Yeah, definitely, because him being tied up, there's no way that he would have been able to do that himself. So Yeah, I, would, yeah. I think you can do it, but it would be really hard to do. And he had respiratory issues. So like they did with the test, the lieutenant who didn't have that was experiencing breathing issues. So I, I can't imagine that Orville would be able to do it for himself and, and get anywhere. I don't know. Yeah. It just seems very strange on that. Yeah. I mean, personally, I do th- agree. I think this was an accidental murder. Uh, I think that they were trying to scare Orville and his family. I, I-, I suspect that they were trying to get maybe them to leave the farm, especially after all of the stuff with Erie. And there was already some like build up to this event before the Erie incident. You could tell that like the town turned on the Gibsons pretty quickly. They were really quick to, to believe the Erie Martin story, which I think stems from the fact that a lot of people had wanted that farm back in the early days. Yeah, definitely. That did not help their case out at all. It kind of put Mm-mm. actually a, a bullseye on their back mm-hmm. for a while. And then this whole thing happened. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that unfortunately... Orville and and his wife were probably being targeted by a lot of folks in the town, especially with threats and things. I think a group of folks probably thought it would be funny to kind of like the police officers say, leave Orville tied up, prove a point, kind of humiliate him like he did Yuri, and you know, that was going to be the end of it. You know, just some kind of good old-fashioned fun, but I think, I agree, I think the fact that Orville had a respiratory issue wasn't taken into account. They wouldn't have known. And I, I do think they panicked after they found him dead. I think they didn't expect him to pass away. Yeah, I I definitely agree. Like I said, I agree with most things that our thoughts on these cases. And I, I do agree with what yeah. you're saying as well. I kind of wonder too, though, you know, I think that with the fact that, you know, we've grown up in, in small New England towns, they, they do keep their secrets. So I suspect that a lot of people in the town did know about this or at least had heard rumors and whispers as to what had happened. And that's why they all clammed up on authorities when they started asking questions. Yeah, that's the hard part when you have such a small community. Mm-hmm. Um, you have people holding things over your head. Um, yeah. A lot of other secrets that you don't want getting out. So yeah. a lot of people probably will shut their mouths um, when something like this happens. Yeah, I agree. I think that this was kind of a... No one wanted to be the one that outed other people. With that said, I'm not convinced that it was Frank or Ozzy. I'm not. I I think their evidence was a little bit circumstantial for them. Their stories changed a lot. So I'm not 100% sure that it was them either. Yeah, definitely. I just don't see what they would have gained in that. Well, none of them would have gained anything. But, you know, they they were trying to prove a point. 
There's just so many questions um, in this case. They really remain unanswered as to what happened to Orville Gibson that morning of December 31st, 1957. I just wanted to share his story so that people didn't think of it as just a New England ghost story always. And so that other people would realize that, unfortunately, on that day, Evelyn Gibson lost her beloved husband. And many people in the community did love somebody that was definitely a a wonderful human and had really tried to give back to the community around him, regardless of whether he had made a mistake in a fight, a stupid fight with Erie Martin or not, Orville Gibson did not deserve to die. And with that, nerdlings, we conclude the case of Orville Gibson, the Vermont farmer who disappeared for 85 days and was found deceased within the dark waters of the Connecticut River. And if you liked this episode or any of our others, please hit that subscribe button and feel free to leave us a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast subscriber. You can also hit us up on our Instagram at CrimetimeNerds or check out our case notes at CrimetimeNerds.com where we post references and photos of all of our cases. We also have a Twitter account, which is at CrimetimeNerds and an email you can reach us at, which is CrimetimeNerds at gmail.com. We will catch you next time, you crime-loving nerdlings.